2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, and I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I've been away so long from this podcasting thing, I forgot where I work. Uh, coming at you also from Texas is Dr. David Grubbs. David, how are things?
0: Hot, human, busy, you know, all, all the stuff is normal for being at HBU right now
2: right on right on and also on the line uh from georgia is dr michael farmer uh michael are you also going to talk about the weather
1: Uh, it's very hot Uh, i am missing the last day the neighborhood pool is open to be here and talk to you guys so if anybody is looking for a glimpse into my life post-academia that's what i do right on oh man
2: uh well, Michael, uh, why don't you talk for a moment about Core Curriculum, because I think our listeners who don't know about it yet uh, could probably use a primer on what appeared in their feed recently.
1: Sure. So last week you should have received the first episode of Core Curriculum, not just on this feed, but also in the feeds for most of our other network shows other than Pi to School Man and before they were live. Uh, and Core Curriculum is a long-form reading series. Uh, the, first, the first series is 11 episodes where we go through the Iliad, a couple or three books at a time. I think it's mostly two, but there's two episodes where we go through three instead of two. And it's a different panel each week. We try to keep it to an hour. Um, the way I think I pitched it was as a, uh, as a graduate seminar with a particularly hands-off instructor, because nobody's really in charge of those episodes, the way somebody writes questions in advance for this show or CFP or wherever. So I'm really, really proud of that show. Uh, I'm not in every episode. I'm not even in most episodes. In fact, nobody is in most episodes. Uh, And each episode is something different. It's a different combination of personalities, interests, and viewpoints. So I do hope you'll subscribe to that. It's got its own feed, which I think you can get if you search for The Core Curriculum or Core Curriculum on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you don't have it there, you can go to our website to one of the posts for uh, core curriculum and click on stream or download this and it'll take you to the dedicated link, uh, dedicated feed, excuse me, to, um, to core curriculum. And you can insert that into your podcatcher as necessary. Very good. We've also got a new sectarian
2: review, uh, Danny Anderson talking about uh, Titans, which is the live action series based on DC's teen Titans. Uh, I believe there's also a new Christian feminist podcast that should drop before this episode does, yes? That's correct,
1: and that's yep. on um, the controversy between Beth Moore and Owen Stran. so some inside Southern Baptist type conversation.
2: And now I've heard that name pronounced out loud. I've always seen it and wondered which letters get pronounced and which ones don't. So I edited that
1: show this morning, and they pronounced it Stran, so I'm pronouncing it Strand. I, I always said Straken yeah yeah but it I, is, it's striking how strangely his name is spelled nice
2: nice uh any other shows on the network guys am i forgetting anyone
1: I had a... Uh, there's, there's a new before they were live two mm-hmm. weeks ago at this point which was about uh the fox and the hound
2: right i enjoyed that episode i haven't listened so yet.
0: is it as depressing as the book or the, the, uh, no, sorry, the movie.
1: no, and we, we mentioned that briefly, that the book is like uh, world-historical depressing, and the movie is just kind of depressing.
0: <laughs> it's, it's one of those where you're like, I wonder, I'll just read the book to see if it—no, don't read, no, don't.
1: Yeah, everybody Oops. dies in a book, is that right?
0: I'm trying to remember. I just remember sadness and never going back.
1: <laughs> so anyway, our episode won't be quite that sad.
2: Well, on that note, uh, we are talking today about one of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays called Circles. Uh, It's one that uh, Michael and I both read in graduate school, though not in the same semester. We might get into stories about that later. But Michael, uh, start off our our focused conversation by situating this essay in the history of American letters. Uh, Where does it fall relative to Emerson's more famous essay, Self-Reliance? And where does it happen relative to some other well-known American writers and American historical events.
1: Uh, before I do that, I need to make a confession, which is when I read this in graduate school, I wrote a, um, a paper about um, T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday, which I read through the lens of this essay and Emerson's experience. And lo and behold, I got that essay published in a very small journal. Uh, a, a few years ago, and uh, I am deeply embarrassed by that essay. I, I think it's it's a really bad faith argument where I essentially wrote it because I could write it and didn't really care about whether it was illuminating the poem or the essay. So please, for the love of God, um, not that I think you could find it because it's a very small academic journal without online access, but uh, please don't anybody try to read it because uh, it's awful and I'm embarrassed by it. and I think I actually kind of... Uh, uh, did some damage to T.S. Eliot's legacy, if, if I did anything at all to it. So I, I wanted to get that out of the way because I am kind of um, very loosely associated with this essay in terms of my former academic career. Now, uh, Circles was first published with self-reliance in Emerson's 1841 collection, Essay's First Series. Uh Emerson was a Unitarian minister, and he resigned from the ministry in 1832, so about 10 years before this was published. And he resigned um, not because he thought the Unitarians were a false sect, but because they were actually too orthodox. He didn't like having to serve the Lord's Supper uh, with whatever that means when you're a Unitarian. So he resigned in 1832. And by the time this essay was published, he'd been making a living as a lecturer for about eight years. So that's, that's what he did for a living. That and he lived off of a settlement he got after his first wife died. I think um, I don't I don't know exactly what that money was, but he had to sue to get it from her from her parents. That's that's how he's making his money. His first book is called Nature. It was published in 1836. It is a book length essay in the familiar Emerson style. I think it I, it's been a long time since I read Nature, but I I think it's probably safe to say that the chapters. Um, don't really add up to an argument because Emerson's work very rarely adds up to an argument. But they may be a little bit more cohesive as a book than Essay's first series is, for example. His most famous lecture, The American Scholar, was delivered in 1837. And that essay, you probably read it in undergrad. It argues that American writers should forge their own way instead of imitating European styles. And it's a really important essay because Emerson predates almost all distinctively American literature. There are only a few major figures who come before him. Um, the first American novel was written by a woman named Susanna It's called Charlotte Temple. It's from 1791, and it is a very Samuel Richardsonian morality tale. And if you like kind of sentimental novels of the 18th century, Charlotte Temple is probably right up your alley. And it's much shorter than anything Richardson wrote, so that's nice. But you couldn't really call it distinctly American. Uh, washington irving's the sketchbook which we talked about in i think was it last year or two years ago's christmas episode that that,
2: Ah, but i don't think it ever reached the public because of my bad recording equipment
1: i thought we re-recorded it maybe i'm I'm wrong we
0: we didn't which means we need to do it again because that was such a fun episode seriously well there is there is
1: a lost uh, chp episode about washington irving's christmas stories in the sketchbook that came out in 1819 and 1820 and, and there again, it's definitely using European models, so the, the two famous pieces in that book are um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, both of which have American settings, but they're American retellings of European films. And then half the book takes place in England, so again, difficult to call that distinctively American. James Fenimore Cooper's leather stocking novels begin to appear in the 1820s, and those really are distinctively American. Um, those are frontier tales of uh, of a a white man who pals around with uh, Indians and gets into various scrapes. I don't know. It's been a long time since i read them. I don't like them at all, but they were... Named Chingachgook and Uncas. They were a huge popular success. Um, Probably, I would say, best known today for the semi-faithful film adaptation of The Last of the Mohicans from the early 90s and uh, for... A truly brutal, excoriating essay written by Mark Twain called Fenimore Cooper's Literary Sense." Um, but I, I think if you're talking about distinctively American authors, you've, you do need to think about Cooper as one because while his his writing might be still pretty European uh, influenced, the the topics and the themes, and certainly the settings, are all um, American. And then the other person we have to mention is Edgar Allan Poe, who had been publishing since 1833 to some success. Uh, Emerson hated Poe. He called him the Jingle Man, uh, which I think is a shot (laughs) at the poem The Bells, if you know that poem, the Poe poem The Bells. Uh, I think think that's why he calls him the Jingle Man. Uh, In in return, um, Poe calls uh, the literary scene in Concord, Massachusetts, where Emerson lives, the Frog Pond. So there was no love lost between those guys. This, this is this is where Emerson is. Uh, in a real sense, he is inventing or helping to invent American literature. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a pretty good argument to be made, and it was made in The New Yorker by, I think the guy's name is Dan Chiasen, a few years ago, that he doesn't actually invent American literature, but he kind of lays out the rules by which people like Walt Whitman are going to invent it. And in that sense, Emerson's important work is his essays, for sure, and um, Though some of his poetry is all right, have either of you read his poems at all?
2: Oh, I feel like I did, but it was years ago, and I couldn't name two of them.
1: Yeah, D- yeah. ditto. Brahma is the one people sometimes read, and I, I like one called Each and All. But they're not—they're not world-shattering the way these essays really, in some sense, are. He's inventing a new style of essay writing, as far as I can, as far as I can tell. He's kind of going along in that montane mode, where it's very discursive. Um, but I, I think he's much more discursive and much more mystical than Montaigne is. And in some ways even more skeptical, but we'll get to that, uh, later. Have I left anything important out, Nathan? I didn't, it it occurs to me, I didn't talk at all about any of the political events going on in 1841.
2: Well, I wondered, uh, you know, of course the Mexican American war is kind of the defining political moment for Henry David Thoreau. Does that have any influence on Emerson's essays at all?
1: Not that I can think of. Slavery becomes a big deal for Emerson after he writes the big, the big essays. I don't remember him talking about the Mexican-American War, but that doesn't mean he doesn't because anybody who's read Emerson knows it's, it's very hard to catalog the essays because each sentence is unrelated to every other sentence in the essay. It's, yeah, I got you. It's, I got it's you. like he, he wrote a series of bumper stickers and threw them into a big vat and pulls them out one by one. So <laughs> nice. He very well may uh, reference the Mexican-American War somewhere, but nothing, nothing strikes me. Nothing jumps out at me about him and the uh, Mexican-American War.
2: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, David, let's, uh, let's dig into the essay itself. The impermanence and the flux of the world uh, are not new themes. We can find them in Heraclitus in, you know, ancient Greek philosophy, uh, but there's certainly themes that run through this essay, and in some ways, uh, I, I, kind of hear an inheritance from medieval writers like Boethius and Dante and such, uh, about the sublunar and all that, but the flux seems more pervasive here somehow. What do you make of all that?
0: Yeah, I, there's, there's a bit of that, especially towards the beginning, uh, but the tone of it is the tone of it seemed to me to be the first thing that changed um his uh his discussion of of uh sculptures melting away like statues of ice um to someone who was thinking from a more maybe neoclassical perspective uh, that would be a moment of tragedy um new arts destroy the old uh, for someone uh, like a Chesterton, uh, that would be a sentence to be read in a tragic vein. But the further the further you go, the more you realize he's actually kind of stoked about this. Uh, it's a very positively flavored impermanence because that sort of cycle of displacement of the old by the new, um, this destruction that you know leads to creation of something else uh is is a moving inevitable movement towards what is great um in in some ways uh I wanted as I was reading it I kept thinking about Tolkien's notion of eucatastrophe um where the the catastrophe in the plot the the great dramatic change is not one that leads to uh, a climactic destructive fall but rather a kind of climactic explosive goodness um, except this is maybe not catastrophe, but more cataclysm. yeah um, the
1: catastrophe settles into a happily ever after right
0: yes and this never can um the burning of the old in order to see what new comes out uh, almost uh almost seems like a a, a positive good it's it's not just a statement of what is but that uh... the man of genius the great man the 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 one who is truly sort of enlightened to the cyclical nature of the universe um, is is excited about it and will do do what he can to 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 bring it about within in in a in a local way um... even even at the level of conversation is, is something he's exploring at the end uh, of the essay. Um, the, the power of this, this, this charismatic, forward thinking person to make the present um, uh, and its constraints disappear in this moment of kind of, of rhetorical, ecstatic speech. Uh, there is there's an ecstasy. When Emerson talks about these cycles, and mm-hmm. and at one point I wrote in the margin, um, "Is he high?"
1: Uh, it, he's high on the it, flux of the world, man.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's the fumes of burning empires. Um, this is a, it's a constantly imminentized eschaton kind of rolling a rolling series of eschatons you know crashing one into another and after another like shifting continental plates um and there's always new mountains rising and old mountains falling and all of this is great and it's basically the opposite of these the medieval notions of impermanence that you're talking about nathan
2: that's
1: exactly right uh yeah yeah <laughs>
0: um for them the flux of the world is to remind you that there is a permanence which we know of uh through faith and through revelation um we don't settle down in this in this in this old passing world um we're pilgrims here um this world is not our home we're just a passing through because as hebrews says um there is a, a better city that is coming down all right um and that's what medieval impermanence always kind of looks to. Um, The end of the old English wanderer poem where friends pass and wealth passes and everything passes and that is so that the person who is wise and learns the lesson of impermanence in this world is drawn to set their hope on heaven where all stability resides. and uh, as I was reading, uh, too, I was thinking of that old, uh, that old Scottish poem, um, "The Lament for the Makers." Um, in, in our pleasance here is all vainglory, This false world is but transitory. The flesh is bruckle, the fiend is slee. Timor mortis combert, contrabat me. All right, the the fear of death disturbs me. The state of man doth change and vary. Now sound, now sick, now blithe, now sere. Now dense and merry, now like to die. Timor mortis contrabat me. Like, that's that's what the Middle Ages does when it looks at the passing, the impermanence, and the flux of the world. It's driven, to con- it's driven to try to find some kind of stability beyond the circle of the world. But for Emerson, the circle of the world is the only thing there is man, and he's going to surf it like a tidal wave into the void.
1: Well, part of that is his pantheism, too, right? So, so what that medieval vision requires is a god who is outside the the flux of the world and unchanging. For for Emerson, God, the world, you, everything else are just manifestations of the same oversoul as he calls them. So so there can be no stability if there's any fluctuation at all for Emerson. And and you're right. I mean, he's he is he is writing that flux like a wave. He he loves it. He says late in the essay that his goal is to unsettle all things. Yeah. Which is not the Emerson people think about, I think. Emerson has three essential essays and he has three essential 19th century heirs. And each one of them corresponds to an essay. This is my theory. So uh, self-reliance, everybody knows. And, and uh, Henry David Thoreau pretty much like springs forth out of self-reliance, like Athena out of Zeus's head. Uh, the <laughs> poet, which is his essay about what American poetry needs to look at. Walt Whitman, like, Consciously builds his poetic career off that essay. So so he's like self mythologizing based on what Emerson says in the poet. This is the third essay. And the third heir is Friedrich Nietzsche, who loved Emerson, carried um, bound copies of Emerson's work with him almost everywhere he went. And my lord, does Emerson, once you know that, does Emerson sound Nietzschean in circles? Listen to this toward the end. Nothing is secure but life, transition, the energizing spirit. No love can be found by oath or covenant to secure it against a higher love. No truth so sublime, but it may be trivial tomorrow in the light of new thoughts. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like Nietzsche? Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Or he says uh, he talks about the eternal generation of circles. I, I mean, it, it's very, very close to Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. Um, mm-hmm. So, and and again, all of that is is very conscious on Nietzsche's part. I don't know that Emerson could have foreseen where Nietzsche takes some of that stuff. But there are aphorisms of Nietzsche that are are almost literally just translations of Emerson into German. Um, And
2: see, I I remember that being a a proud moment in my undergrad career is that I I went to Terry Dibble, my American lit professor, and told him that, you know, I can see a lot of these things Emerson is doing leading into something like Friedrich Nietzsche's project. And he says, well, Gilmore, go look up his biography. And Nietzsche carried around
1: volumes of Emerson everywhere he went. yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think probably Emerson ended up being more important to Nietzsche's development than, even than Wagner did, just because he never broke with Emerson. He loved him all the way to the end. And, and really, circles, you, you can lose it, um, in part because Emerson's public reputation is this kind of gentle hippie, and Nietzsche's public reputation is of this, you know, essentially cosmic arsonist burning everything down. But uh, Emerson is Nietzsche's father. In a lot of really important ways, even right down to that destruction, he says uh, the constant flux of new things is a quote new influx of the divinity into the mind, which means that what we're talking about with this with this flux is creative destruction. Um, yeah. One of one of Nietzsche's big ideas, the idea that we've got to tear down the old in order to make room for the new. You've got to have an evolution that kills off man in order to produce the Ubermensch. Uh, Again, I I don't know what Emerson would have thought about some of the extremes to which Nietzsche, and especially Nietzsche's followers, take that. But uh, it's all here. These are the seeds of of Nietzsche and and of the post-structuralists later.
0: Well, if they take it in directions that he he disapproves of, he certainly can't disapprove it on the basis of this essay.
1: No, and and in fact, it's hard for Emerson to disapprove of anything, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, if they take it in directions that he wouldn't go... um... I got up, Buttercup. You just said that's what the, that's what happens.
1: I mean, it's it's like the boomers telling you not to trust anyone over thirty, but then to do what they say. <laughs> yeah. Emerson, Emerson is the quintessential baby boomer. Oh, yeah.
0: Nice. I mean, this is all well and good if you're the one surfing the wave, but if you're the one that the wave is falling on, um, and you're still cackling with glee, like that—that's—that's—that's. That's, that's, that to me is just another level of madness.
2: Michael, I've got a, a question going the other direction. Uh, as far as you know, uh, was Emerson familiar at all with Goethe or Hegel? Cause those are two more figures that I definitely hear going on here. Or was it just kind of atmospheric this, this notion of historical pantheism?
1: Yeah. So, um, in 1850, that's nine years after this is published just for reference, he puts out a book called Representative Men, which is a collection of lectures about um, the people he finds great. Uh, so he talks about Plato. He talks about Swedenborg, which is kind of crazy because nobody thinks about Swedenborg <laughs> anymore, but it's the 19th century. So everybody who's even a little bit weird is thinking about a manual Swedenborg. Uh, he talks about Montaigne appropriately. He talks about Shakespeare. He talks about Napoleon. And then he talks about Goethe at the end. I will admit, I haven't read Representative Men, so I don't know exactly what he says about Goethe, Nor do I know if he, if he really talks about Hegel at all. I know that um, the doctrine of transcendentalism, as Emerson puts it forth to the degree he puts forth a doctrine, um, and it's not just a kind of collection of poetic aphorisms, um, is based on a misreading of Kant, uh, in the critique of pure reason, Kant's language about the transcendental, uh, Emerson misunderstands that as you know a completely reasonable thing to do since it's incomprehensible, and, com- <laughs> and comes up with this thing we call American transcendentalism. So, my guess is he would have seen in Hegel um, something uh, something of a kindred spirit, but I don't know exactly whether or not he actually engages with Hegel.
2: Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha.
1: When was Hegel writing, Nathan?
2: Oh goodness! Well, I, the question didn't occur to me till we are recording, so I didn't look that up. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll just pass on that one and say, listeners, if we have any Hegelians out there, you can enlighten us here.
1: Because Emerson's trip to Europe is like eighteen thirty-three, and so he meets he meets a lot of the important figures of European Romanticism, and I, I my understanding is that's kind of his exposure to a lot of these ideas. So I, I don't know if, if Hegel is writing, if, if Phenomenology of Geist or whatever comes out after that, I'm not, sure. I'm not sure the degree to which he would have been interested in it. But I don't know. I'm not an expert on Emerson, exactly. I've just read most of the early essays.
2: Okay. Well, Michael, I want to throw another uh, term into the stew here, and that is generalization. Uh, what I take it to mean in this essay is the capacity for the intellect to situate previous intellectual moves in a more comprehensive system. And it's one of the iterations of the concentric circles that this essay involves. So to what extent would you call this a a poetic iteration of enlightenment notions of progress? And to what extent is Emerson doing something genuinely different here?
1: Well, and and weirdly, like, this is the thing that sounds a little bit like Hegel, right? That, That each generation is making a synthesis of generations that come before it. Oh, sure, sure. Um, so what he says is that every human action or every human thought admits of being outdone. That's his, that's his phrasing. And that means that all our actions are temporary and heuristic. They're going to be forgotten and they're going to be replaced and reinterpreted and reorganized by later actions. And not only, by the way, is there nothing you can do about that. Uh, that's a good thing. And and I think this is what David was getting at when he said that Emerson could hardly complain about the use Nietzsche's putting him to because this is what he says we all do. That's what generalization is. And because of that, he uses both positive and negative images of change. So progress, if that's what we're talking about with generalization, is something that is both painful and uh, beautiful. Progress is the only thing that makes it possible for us to succeed, right? So progress clears away the past for us to kind of stand there and do our thing, shout to the heavens or whatever Emerson wants us to do. Um, But once it makes our success possible, it's also progress that destroys it. So you shout to the heavens and then you are immediately cleared away to make room for a new generation um, doing the same thing. It opens another image you might think of is it it opens a pit underneath what was new. So, so when something is new, it gets stale and then it just, the, the ground opens up and swallows it, and it's it's not important anymore, or it's it, at the very least recontextualized. And uh, you might think there, like the circle of life type thing, where a tree or whatever dies and is reincorporated into the ground, and then um, and then serves as sustenance for future trees. It's not that the tree disappears; it's just, it's it's been generalized, right? All its molecules have been redistributed, and and maybe that's what we're doing here. With that, but I think it's really interesting that he has a vision of technological disruption, uh, w- which I wasn't ready for, um, probably because I tend to read Emerson through Thoreau, um, and Thoreau would hate uh, this quote. Uh, new arts destroy the old. See the investment of capital and aqueducts made useless by hydraulics, fortifications by gunpowder, roads and canals by railways, sails by steam, steam by electricity. Very un-Thoreauian, right? Th- Thoreau is so skeptical of of technological advancement and what it's destroying. And so is Emerson elsewhere. Um, so in Self-Reliance, he makes a comment about uh, learning to, uh, forgetting how to tell time with the sun because you have a wristwatch. Here, he seems to say that the wristwatch destroying the sundial is, you know, if not a good thing, it's beneficent. It it, um, it allows us to move forward to generalize. These new truths, these new ideas, these new Facts, although he doesn't like the word fact, they're, they're uncomfortable at first, and then we generalize them, we get used to them, and they become just part of the structure of our life to be wiped away and regeneralized by the next generation. I don't know if that's the vision of enlightenment uh, progress. Probably not, because we're not progressing toward anything. Um, as we discussed earlier, this is a cycle. So everything's going to get wiped away, and at no point are you ever going to get to the, the perfect society. I don't, I don't know in, the Enlightenment well enough to know whether um, how eschatological that really was. Uh, I, I like David's earlier image of the permanent eschaton.
2: Right. Well, I mean, there's, there's no such thing as the Enlightenment, and it's a good thing, too. Uh, different figures have different visions of what's coming. So, I mean, you know, for instance, you know, to go back to Hegel, uh, his his notion of progress, I mean, sounds a lot like Emerson's here. Uh, it is something where each revolution is, by definition, unimaginable to those before the revolution. So therefore, the categories of, of good and evil aren't
1: really uh, intelligible in the new order. Well, that does sound very much like this essay. Oh, maybe he, here's a question: Was Hegel familiar with Emerson?
2: This is something I should have researched before we started recording, but again, the questions didn't occur to me till our conversation got rolling.
1: Nathan, I try not to think about Hegel any more than I have to. So I, I, I feel like, this, as someone who's read this essay so many times, I feel like I should have thought about it, but I didn't. Like, he didn't even come to mind. I will say that Emerson belongs to a generation that is skeptical of Enlightenment claims. But they're not skeptical of every enlightenment claim, you know? So I I think the idea that progress exists in some form is, is obviously, uh, obviously belongs to Emerson, but uh, I I don't know. I don't know who in the enlightenment it would look like. It seems like this view, even though
0: it does have that, that's that sense of progress and even forward progress. um, I, I, I have a hard time though, imagining someone that, if this was their view, being able to take the kind of self-satisfied stance of of knowledge that uh, is a sort of, I guess, stereotypical of the Enlightenment towards ears that come before it. Yeah. Um, like that, you can't really say, "Oh, those, oh, those benighted souls sniff." I mean, it it would be like. You know this wave that hits the beach sniffing at the one that hit the beach before it and when here comes another after it and an infinite number after it I mean no one's really in a position to look back at what came before it and go oh you you, you saps because none of this forward progress is really in any sense an achievement it just always it just seems to happen unless I'm misreading it
1: no, and and yet, is humility the virtue that comes to mind when you think of Ralph Waldo Emerson? <laughs> yeah, I mean, may, maybe not. At, at, various, at various points in his catalog, and it's very hard for me to remember where any particular statement is because again, the essay is. But at various points, he says essentially, uh, "The past belongs to the past." Haas, let's move on. But then, of course, I mean, he puts out Representative Men at the end of his career, where he's doing these deep dives into Plato, and I haven't read it, so I don't know how respectful it is, but it's it's also clear that he he understands that he owes a lot to particular thinkers who came before him. I don't know. He's a very difficult person to pin down. Yeah. Which is funny because everybody thinks they know Emerson. They they read they read Self Reliance and they read Thoreau's Walden and they 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 think they've got Emerson, but he is he is a much larger figure than Thoreau, in my mind. Walden's a better book. I mean Walden's much yeah. more fun to read. Um, but Emerson, uh, as, as Whitman says, contains multitudes,
0: you know? Yeah. I mean, he still has, you know, quotes like men walk as prophecies of the next age or, or the great man is not convulsible or tremble events pass over him without much impression. Like there still seems to be some kind of a great man here, but darned if I can figure out why he's important in the long in the long run, except as you know, another atom bumping up against other other ones.
1: Well, maybe maybe that's where Nietzsche, who's writing after Darwin, has an advantage over Emerson because Nietzsche can frame the Übermensch as being the agent of evolution beyond the human. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I mean, concepts of evolution existed before Darwin. I don't want to I don't want to oversimplify, but um, I I think that language would have been more readily available to Nietzsche than it was to Emerson. So I wonder if I wonder if maybe that's the difference between the two of them. Because you, you don't read um, Nietzsche and say, uh, well, what's this great man going to do? We know exactly what the great man is going to do, right? He's going to destroy the human um, in order to become uh, something superhuman.
2: Or at least cross over the rope. Yeah. That's interesting. And David, it's interesting. I mean, your, your image of one atom bumping up against another, I, I, I think there's something to that, but I think that the image of the new circle that encompasses all the previous circles is something just a little bit different. So, I mean, you know, it, it's not ultimate to be sure, but it is provisionally ultimate. If I can use a paradoxical phrase there.
0: Yeah. It's as far as we've come now.
2: Right, right. So, I mean, if your notion of progress is one of generalization in which whatever comes next is by definition not imaginable yet, then the great man really does do something. It's just not something that the people before the great man have any capacity to anticipate.
0: And therefore can't be shamed for it, right?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I that, that's a uh... That's definitely, I mean, one of the implications of it, and I I think that is the laughter of Nietzsche at the liberal atheists in something like Genealogy of Morals, right? It's, you know, okay, you people think that you have stepped beyond this Christianity stuff, but you still reek of it, your morality is still Christian, there is something else that's going to come along that you're not ready for. Yeah. Well, David, uh, we've kind of already hit on this, but I'm I'm curious to see if there's any other directions you're going to go with it, because I found it curious that uh, early in this essay, uh, Emerson makes reference to Augustine's theology. Uh, But then again, Wittgenstein also begins philosophical investigations with a quote from Augustine, so maybe we shouldn't take either one too seriously. But uh, it did uh, give me an idea for a question just so, so I could put the ball on the tee and let you swing uh is there anything really augustinian about this essay
0: oh man first time i looked at it and i always read the questions first right because they they focus my uh they focus my reading so the first time i read through it i was like i don't see anything except the quote i was like where is where's my favorite stuff i don't see any of it so I went. I, I took another pass just to see. And on that pass, I thought, okay, now now here's something, namely the notion of political social political and social flux um, that's built into the sort of theory of secular history in Augustine's City of God. Now, that flux in City of God, of you know civilizations rising and falling, is in no sense one of forward momentum that's leading to something greater and higher uh, in in any sort of inevitable way. But it is inevitable that the change will come, and so the, the, the relativizing of cultures, you know, there will be this one culture that is the predominance of an idea, and then another idea will come and the old will pass away. You know, the Greek sculptures melting like statues of ice again. And not exactly Augustinian entirely, but uh, there is still that, that sense in which this is a view of, of history that um, attempts to extract the reader, the thinker, uh, from the verities of their cultural moment. And turning too many of the locally, g- local geographically, local historically, turning too much of what is locally true in- into what is kind of conceptually permanent. Um, so, you know, this this life is transitory, and that and that means don't get too attached to Rome, you guys, for Augustine. Um, another thing is the sense of personal smallness in the face of a transcendent reality that is always pushing beyond that that personal mental smallness's ability to grasp it. Um, and we get a lot of that in Augustine's Confessions, where he's very self-consciously thinking about whether or not God can fit in his noggin, more or less. And some of that seems to be going on, too. Um, you know, however human thought has gone, there's always a little bit further that it could go. Um, the, the, the unattainable is a moral fact. The perfect that's always ahead is always there. Um, those are some things that are related, I guess. Some differences, um, his exuberant great man hubris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> not not super Augustinian. Um his de facto contempt for the things that come before, or at least his dismissal of what from what comes before, even though it's wrapped up into a kind of theoretical insistence that whatever was good in the old is somehow present in the new and fulfilled by it. But that's still but he still happily burned it down, right? Um, the collapse of the transcendent into the imminent, right? So that the man of genius is sort of on that edge of reality. The reality is not the thing that's constantly beyond his fingers, but the tip of his fingers is the edge of reality.
2: Right, um, right.
0: Like, all of those things are are things that uh, Augustine would Augustine would want to set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um true enough, so yeah that's that that was that that was my my take
2: and and what occurred to me and i and I'm gonna float this, and you guys can either you know just knock the stuffing out of it or run with it, depending on which one is appropriate uh but what occurs to me is that the maneuver that Augustine makes relative to the historical Emerson extends out to the intellectual. So for Augustine everything historical is by definition uh subject to the fire. Emerson takes ideas and puts it to the same fire.
0: That makes sense whereas Augustine tends to be
2: you know the way that he
0: talks about um Christianity preserving what was best in Plato and dis- and discarding uh what was what was weak. Um but but I don't. But Augustine is is in no way looking for the, the, the post Christian, that right
2: right. So in that sense, Emerson is absolutely not eschatological, but because the eschatological assumes an eschaton, a final thing, for Emerson that doesn't seem to be a final thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking about consigning the intellectual to the flames, and and Emerson is an idealist. Uh, in, the, in the philosophical sense, he says, uh, much more obviously is history and the state of the world at any one time directly dependent on the intellectual classification then existing in the minds of men. And it's true that that intellectual classification is in flux at all times, right? But even more in flux is the raw material of the world, which is gonna, which is gonna which has almost no meaning in and of itself. It's just it's just whatever intellectual system the age the, uh, designates to uh, to understand it.
2: Right, right, and and it's interesting. I uh, you know there's there's times I think that these ten years we've spent on this podcast are to prepare me to actually understand what I read in John Milbank five years before we started. Uh, but he's got this notion of provisional hierarchies in his uh, book Theology and Social Theory. And what he asserts is that, given the historical change to which the intellectual life is subject, that, you know, we always have to hold on provisionally to any kind of construct that we have currently. And yet, in a given moment, some kind of hierarchical construct is necessary even to have a thought. And it occurs to me, I mean, you know, when when Milbank calls himself a postmodern Augustinian, that uh, in some ways, I mean, that seems to be another word for a Christian Emersonian, maybe?
1: Mm. Hmm. 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 If there is such a thing, I'm, I'm skeptical. All right,
2: all right. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well,
1: one more difference between Emerson and Augustine, and, and this is a minor point in Emerson and a big point in Augustine. Uh, it has to do with how good and evil interact. Emerson writes, I own I am gladdened by seeing the predominance of the saccharine principle throughout vegetable nature. I don't know what that means. And not less by beholding in morals that unrestrained inundation of the principle of good into every chink and hole that selfishness has left open, yea, into selfishness and set itself so that no evil is pure nor hell itself without its extreme satisfaction. That is a big difference from the Augustinian doctrine. Evil for Emerson has substance and good is an alternative substance that fits into the chinks of the holes in the subject in the substance of evil. So I, I think I think right away Augustine would be disgusted by Emerson's uh, understanding of good and evil, uh, just because Emerson's essentially a Manichaean, although he's a, a subtle Manichaean.
0: <laughs> Augustine doesn't like those.
1: No, I imagine not. <laughs>
2: Well, Michael, I want to turn to the literary and its place in this essay. Something is going on when Emerson compares the power of the sonnet and the potency of the play with the relative powerlessness of the encyclopedia. Uh, What about poetic utterance and poetic writing make them fitting partners in this uh, circular endeavor?
1: Well, for Emerson, um, literature is a mode of self-understanding. And because it's a mode of self-understanding, it's a mode of human progress. And he, he mentions that very briefly here. I think you see it much more clearly in his other essay, The Poet, which is published in 1844. I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with that essay and we can kind of attach it to this one. In that essay, he presents the poet as a guy who has the spiritual vision to see the ideas in themselves. So, right, the facts of the world aren't what matters. What matters is the organization we put them to. The poet sees this more clearly than everybody else. And because of that, he can kind of construct the world that we need at the time. The poet, for that reason, is the eternal man um, for Emerson. He's not a man of his time. He's a man who stands outside of his time and sees the, sees what is constant, if anything, underneath the flux of the ages. And so he has this very romantic, messianic notion of who the poet is. He says that his birth... Is the central act of human history? He says he brings what is dead back to life, and then he says, um, "quote The poets are thus liberating gods," which is goes even further than Shelley's famous, "The poet is the unacknowledged legislature of the world, le- legislator of the world." So, I the, the, there's a huge place for art in in what Emerson is doing here, um, and, and and especially it stands over and against what the scientist is trying to do. The scientist is just playing around with the individual facts and the individual facts are what is most in flux. Um, So the poet can get closer to what we might think of as eternal, even if what's eternal is, as he says at the beginning of this essay, a transparent law rather than a uh, collection of doctrines or truths. That's why he says Christianity can't be understood by the catechism. He doesn't exactly say what it can be understood by, <laughs> Presum- presumably by its poetry.
0: I mean, he does talk at that moment, Christianity not being as understood by its catechism, but from pastures, from a boat in the pond, perhaps Walden Pond, from amidst the song of wood birds we possibly may. So, I mean, there's something in there's something in nature from which we can get the Christianity that's unavailable in the catechism, but, you know... I don't think that's anything that we're going to be able to pin him down on, though.
1: Forgive yeah. me no, I if so. I don't care what a Unitarian says is the essence of Christianity.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. I am interested, though, in this critique of encyclopedic knowledge, because I, I think it's a, a good picture of what he's after here, because an encyclopedia, uh, by its genre, right, uh, is attempting to set everything in sort of fixed relationships to each other this is a species of this is a genus of this is a class of this and so on and so forth uh, these are different from those uh, and you know I, I think for Emerson and I'm 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 inferring this I don't think it exists in a line unless you guys find a line where he says it uh, like Michael said the individual lines are hard to keep straight in my mind sometimes but it seems like Emerson would call the encyclopedia a sort of snapshot of this eternal, you know, building of concentric circles and this eternal uh, process of, ge- of uh, generalization. Uh, but he would say that the error of the encyclopedia is to take its own endeavor so blasted seriously.
1: What, yes, and I, I think you're right. I think he'd say burn your encyclopedia Britannica. But You know what he'd love? Wikipedia. <laughs> with this this it, it's, a, it's a system of knowledge that's never complete.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: Well,
2: or even even if we don't go to the much maligned Wikipedia, uh replace the Webster's dictionary with the Oxford English dictionary.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, the the submersion of the... I always get these mixed up. Let's see if I can get them right. The submersion of the synchronic and the diachronic...
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: ...is, is what's really, really interesting here. Um, the encyclopedia in print form is necessarily of a time and of a place. Um, Wikipedia, not just because it always expands, but because it's constantly capable of revision is never going to be presenting that kind of synchronic vision of one set of print encyclopedias in a particular edition. Um,
2: Right, right. The vision that I I still remember is uh, if you took all of the revisions of the Wikipedia article on the Iraq War, uh, it would fill up six bookshelves.
1: Yeah, and and ten years from now, it would fill up 40 like, I, I, um, I, I really think Emerson would like that. I, it's, it's important to remember that when he talks about circles, the primary metaphor here is not going around in a circle. I think that's a secondary metaphor. The primary metaphor is expanding circles. So you, you, you have a small circle that becomes a larger circle that becomes a larger circle, and the circle is forever expanding. That is a description of how wikis work.
2: Right, right. And if in your triumph you draw a bigger circle that encompasses all the rest of the circles, that's what history does, but it's also going to draw a circle that also encompasses your circle.
1: That's right. It, so it, the, the, that, that expansion never stops. And because of that, I, I do think it's fair to think of that secondary metaphor as coming back around. Because um, you you get big enough and eventually you're just going to be small again in a weird way. You know what I mean? You're You're going to see that you're not really making any progress, even though you're getting bigger.
0: One thing, though. Uh, he, calls, he talks about continually drawing the circle around the other circle. Um, is it something outside the circle drawing a bigger circle around the existing circle? Or is it the momentum from within the existing circle pushing out to create another circle, like ripples when a rock falls in the pond?
1: I take it to be the latter.
0: Yeah, because if, if you put it that way, then there is still this energy in the past and it's generating that energy in the present there's still a kind of weight there's still a kind of um uh well momentum at the very least a kind of energy from what happened before um that's spilling out into the next thing
2: right Right. I, david you give me a an image of a mc escher drawing of you know the hand reaching out from inside the circle and drawing a circle around itself.
1: Well, I, mean, yeah. I think that's right. What What's the first line of this essay? The eye is the first circle. The horizon which it forms is the second. And throughout nature, this primary figure is repeated without end. So the looker and the limit of the looker's looking are united. Like the, the, the looker yeah. somehow creates his own limits and then surpasses them. Right, right.
2: And, and to loop back, I mean, I think this is one of the places where it's definitely not an Augustinian essay because it doesn't have a sense of the infinite as truly infinite. The The concept of infinity that emerges is always simply N plus one Yeah. in perpetuity. Agreed. I actually didn't think of that before we started recording. That emerged... From the conversation, so Touche Emerson.
1: That's the that's the fun part of this uh, show is things emerge from the conversation. But I mean, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So um, when when Christians think about infinity, maybe when realist Christians <laughs> think about um, infinity, they think they think about something that actually exists. When Emerson's talking about infinity, he's talking about our inability to exhaust.
2: Right. Right. That makes, hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Well, David, uh, I want to talk about saints uh, because Emerson makes a, a weird claim at the end, or not necessarily a claim, but he, he, he takes a weird swerve at the end uh, when he calls the virtues of society the vices of the saint. Uh, I feel like I could find similar sentiments in a, an O'Connor story or a book about Francis of Assisi or even the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but describe for a moment the way that Emerson generalizes that move.
0: So the full context for that quote, there is no virtue which is final, all are initial. The virtues of society are the vices of the saint. The terror of reform is the discovery that we must cast away our virtues, or what we have always esteemed such in the same pit that has consumed our grosser vices. Now, if you see part of, uh, if, if you feel like you're hearing similar sentiments from you know O'Connor or Francis or Gospel of Luke. Uh, I hear Gospel of Matthew, but you know six one. It's that uh, that seed, the the of mm, eschatological reversal that's uh, embedded in uh, preaching of the kingdom throughout the New Testament. Which is, uh, which is something that you see um, in Isaiah prophecy, right? Every valley exalted, every mountain and hill made low. Um, the idea that what is established now must be overturned in order for the future good to, to, to come. Um, the way Jesus says it in uh, Matthew 5, is accept your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Um, so the idea that it's not just the, their vices that must be overcome, but the um, the the virtues that are accepted in this over in this um, passing age, those virtues are themselves um, things things to be. Uh, overcome and undercut, and part of the part of the reversal that the kingdom brings—that weird upside down kingdom that Jesus preaches, where the poor inherit everything and hungry people are rich.
2: Right, and that's what makes Revelation my favorite O'Connor story, right? Because the—and I can't even remember the main character's name. Ruby Turpin. There you go. She sees their virtues being burned away. Yep. And, and right.
0: the idiots entering the kingdom of God before her. Um yeah so i i i I like that it's it's my jam and it constantly puts my self-justification into a uh into a framework that that sees even it as filthy rags um now I know Nathan that you know sometimes that that's a that's maybe a, a Calvinist bridge too far and you want to say that you know in whatever exercise of virtue there is some real good etc etc
2: That was my dissertation yes Yeah
0: yeah we have we've, we've done the reading Um uh, O'Connor would
1: probably agree with that as well by the way
0: Right that's like like that that's my point like the the the, eschatolo- the eschatological reversal and the notion that you know there, there can still be real virtue in this passing age um, is, is there. Both of those things I think exist, and I think both of them are biblical things to say.
1: But they don't both exist in Emerson.
0: Yeah. Nope. What you have in Emerson is an endless self-congratulatory flipping of tables. Is there a table? Let's flip it. Woo! It's just <laughs> any establishment whatever the establishment is, even the ones that you haven't imagined yet. We're going to have to disestablish them. Um, whatever. There is you... no
1: virtue which is final; all are initial.
0: Yep. So the counter, the 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 counterculture, so to speak, um, that he posits is the place where virtue is. And whatever change comes into culture because of the counterculture, the new counterculture must oppose it because now it's culture. And there's, and there's nothing but nothing but setting things on fire to see what the next Phoenix will be.
1: It really is very Hegelian. Oh yeah. Yeah. And <sighs> I had to read Hegel at some point.
2: well i mean is it coming up in 10 or 12 years on a core curriculum uh yeah probably (laughs) i'll probably be
1: dead by then
0: oof well if not that if not that'll kill you
1: no but by (laughs) by then the next generation will be running that show it'll be um it'll be micah gilmore and uh and arden grubbs
0: No man, they're gonna set that on fire and rise like phoenixes in order to in, in some new new enlightened age.
2: Did you just say phoenixes? That's awesome. I, I was gonna say he just pluralized phoenix like
1: a boss. <laughs> That's the kind of content you can't get anywhere else, folks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did that thing. Wee, oui, I did that thing.
2: Oh, I I don't even know where to go from there, David. Other than to say that, yeah, I mean, this, uh, what it makes me think of is what makes the alt-right so terrifying because they aren't simply, you know, 17th century enlightenment racism, but they are a rebellion against the calcified moralism that arose out of the upheaval of the 1960s. So in some ways, I mean, they are impossible to put a grip on because there's so many levels of recursiveness there. Recursion, recursion, that's the noun.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Emerson's true heirs. Oh, I hope not, because I kinda of like this essay. I did too, yeah.
1: I don't think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: I I have too much Chesterton in me to be super enthusiastic. There are definitely some great rhetorical flights and some good quotes that I want to put on things. But I mean, that's all, that's right, all of right. Emerson to me. Like, I'll find a fragment of Emerson, and I'll be like, that goes on a t-shirt, and then three sentences down, I'm like, and I want to set that on fire, and not because of phoenixes.
2: Well, well, David, as we discuss on an episode of the core curriculum that our listeners will have to wait for, I've got a lot more of the old pagan in me than you do, I think. It's
1: fair. Do you find Emerson pagan, I guess, I guess that um, eternal recurrence bit that, Nietzsche gets from him is, is pagan in its way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I find him a, a, a pro to Nietzsche and therefore I find him pretty much neo-pagan.
1: I'm fine with that. As long as you, 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 you've also got to think of those other two sides of him though. Because if he, if he brings us Nietzsche, he also brings us Whitman and Thoreau. And those three guys are very, very different people.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, as you as you uh, appropriated Whitman, he contains multitudes.
1: It's like how uh, oh, when I interviewed Merrill Westfall all those years ago, he he said something I've never stopped thinking about, which is that um, Derrida is the radical son of Heidegger, and Gadamer is the conservative son of Heidegger.
2: Yeah, that's right on target. Well, at any rate, guys, uh, I, I don't know if our listeners are still with us or not at this point, but. I have a hunch that most of the essay I've left unexplored today, so I want to take it around the horn here at the end. What conversation rooted in this essay could occupy another hour if we let it? Uh, When you've outlined your episode that is not to be, Michael, pass it along to David.
1: The question of friendship um, in this essay is interesting, and he has another essay called Friendship, which I haven't read in many years, so I don't know how much this dovetails with that. All my books, I should say, are in a uh, pod in Powder Springs, Georgia, uh, waiting for us to buy a house to move them to. So I, I my, my library is severely curtailed at the moment, and I don't read very well online. Uh, okay, so he says, a man's growth is seen in the successive choirs of his friends. For every friend whom he loses for truth, he gains a better. And I just wonder if Emerson thinks that this is always an upward motion. Because surely we lose a lot of friends without gaining any real spiritual growth out of it. He acts like when you jettison a friend, it's because you've grown past them. And I think sometimes it's probably because you're regressing or because they're growing past you. He also has a rather consumerist vision of what friendship is. He says that we give up on people when we discover their limitations. So... Our, the falling apart of our relationships is not a matter of our fallenness. It's a matter of our finitude. We exhaust our friends' personalities, and then we move on to new friends. Which that is,
2: is, horrifying. that it, is horrifying. It really is, and it, maybe
1: it's not horrifying if you think of yourself as the Emerson, but if you think of yourself as Emerson's friends, like how long is it going to be until my friends discover my limitations, decide that they've used me up like a pack of cigarettes, and, uh, and throw the empty carton into the trash can, you know? A man is not an orange. You can't eat the fruit and throw the peel away. <laughs> you're, you're, you're welcome for that, anxiety listeners. Nice. So, I mean, I, of all the demonic things in this essay, and I, I think there is a kind of demoniacal quality to this essay, this one might be the most demonic. Like, this, this is the one that hits us uh, the closest to, to who we are on a daily basis. My goodness. Yeah.
2: David, what do you got? That
0: bit stuck out to me. Uh, and as I mean, ex- everything that you just said, Michael, but it's, it's just exceptionally ugly. Um, and he must've been an exhausting person to be around, you know, uh, especially if, 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 if you were one of his friends um, who read this essay and are like, oh, now, now I know why I feel so hollow <laughs> after conversation with him. Um, yeah. The the other thing that I thought was really funny uh, is in the paragraph before the virtues of society or vices of the saint. Um, and the one before that, buried in in all of that you know overthrow of 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 you know the existing values etc uh is one man thinks justice consists in paying debts and has no measure in his abhorrence of another who's very remiss in his duty and makes the creditor wait tediously, but that second man has his own way of looking at things. He asks himself, which debt must I pay first? The debt to the rich or the debt to the poor? The debt of money or the debt of thought to mankind? Of genius to nature? For you, O broker, there is no other principle but arithmetic. For me, commerce is of trivial importance port and so forth I mean, there's a guy who's missed some payments
1: well I mean <laughs> right. I bet commerce isn't so trivial when he's charging for his lectures
0: right but like, I, I, I love that, that one little moment where <laughs> I am above such crude things as debts how very convenient um, yeah
1: that, that feels very thorough to me yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It, it, everybody gets real anti-establishment when it turns out that the establishment has the the financial lever over them. But when it's reversed, suddenly you're, um, you know, you're you're all about maintaining status quo. Isn't that fascinating?
1: Well, you know, today's the uh, today's radical is tomorrow's bourgeois.
0: Yeah, but it's it, to me that 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 paragraph was so funny. Um, yeah. but
1: My favorite absurd bit in all of Emerson is in the poet when he talks about how the poet can't commune with the divine if he's all filled up on French coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what?
0: I, okay.
2: Well, listeners, on that note, uh, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up in this grand Uno game that is the Christian Humanist podcast. I am playing the reverse card and sending it back to Michael Farmer. Michael, what are we doing next show?
1: Well, um, I've already atoned for the Emerson part of that terrible essay. So next week, we're going to talk about Elliot's Ash Wednesday, and I'm going to try I'm going to try to make up for the terrible reading of that poem I put out into the world 10 years ago.
2: Sounds like a winner. Tenants. Well,
1: <laughs> well, you know, I did start RCIA last week, so it's time to start thinking about reconciliation.
2: Well, listeners, uh, until you download our episode on TSL, you can find us at christianhumanist.org. You can also find us at our Facebook group. You can email us at thechristianhumanist@gmail.com at gmail.com. You can also rate us on uh, iTunes and Podcast Addict, Stitcher, other podcast providers. That always brings listeners our way, and we're always grateful to you for it. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and Michael, are you our, our editor right now? I am. Michael Farmer is our editor, and I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.